0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. My name is Travis Dow.
0: And I'm Pete Coleman.
1: Today we're going to talk about Gilles de Ray, and his full name was Gilles de Montmorency Laval, also known as Gilles de Retz. And he lived from 1404 to 1440. So he was Baron de Rey. That's why he's Gilles de Rey. And he was a Breton knight and a leader in the French army in the Hundred Years' War. So the Hundred Years' War, we're talking... Uh, so he was actually companion in arms of Joan of Arc. And eventually, he was convicted as a prolific serial killer of children. And a lot of the information we get you know, that comes to us through this podcast is from his trial... Uh, of this of this serial killer thing, um, so anyways, he was born in 1404 in the castle Chamboussay sur Loire. Pardon my French pronunciation. I think it was right? pretty close. I hope so. We'll 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 <laughs> find out in listener mail. Uh, his parents died when he was 11, and came to be under the care of his grandfather. Now I'll mention that his grandfather kept trying to arrange marriages between ray and more wealthy women. So you know, kind of you know, doing this pol- political maneuvering of trying to. Gain more land and and wealth and status and everything. I'm not mentioning this because it's interesting per se, but one of the women was Beatrice de Rohan, which if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, that's that's an awesome name. I'll just
0: I'll just but not like the Rohan of of uh, Lord of the Rings fame.
1: Hey, as far as I know, <laughs> it's one of the same. So <laughs>
0: okay, um, you know he also he also uh, uh, married and had one daughter. Uh, during the Hundred Years' War, the claim to fame of his earlier life was was being a uh, um at the side of Joan of arc and yeah. uh during during the times of, of of the french trying to keep and solidify the dauphin's place against the british uh he, he was right there with her uh throughout mm-hmm. thick and thin and to be part of that army you'd have to you have to follow her lead and it was a religious uh spin on this uh of her following god's will to put the dauphin back in into into uh, yeah. and, and power, and,
1: and so he was get rid of the
0: British, and he was right there with her. Yeah, so he was
1: one of the supposed witnesses of her, miracles of, her and, of her miracles. Get yeah,
0: yeah. instead of going the direction of saying, "Oh, let's let's use these miracles as a way to kind of straighten out your life." He kind of went in a little different uh, angle, didn't he? Yeah, he was a huge spender, Travis. I, I would say that that uh, uh, he was a, a guy that didn't really hold back when it came to wanting to spend money. He sold all his estates. And he put – to put on a play. His play had some 600 costumes made up for this particular play, worn once, then mm-hmm. thrown away, and then made over again. He really treated his guests well during this play, by the way. He would actually give them all they could eat and drink during his performance.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: So uh, he really didn't pull any punches when it came to that. But you can see how his family probably would say, okay – Here's the deal, buddy. Uh, we, you're spending too much money. We've got to curb this spending.
1: They had an intervention? They
0: had an intervention. You know, uh, we love <laughs> you. Uh, <laughs> Jill, you're a great guy, but we're gonna, you're going to have to curb the spending. Um, he was no longer allowed to sell any of his holdings, and, and no one was allowed to enter into a contract with him. So basically, he, he, the kibosh was put on this guy. His yep. credit was dropped. All right, so mm-hmm. no credit card spending at the time, of course, and he left uh, uh, Orleans to uh, pursue other uh, activities, and leaving behind all his precious arts and manuscripts uh, to his creditors. Mm-hmm. So you know he really left as as a man that was uh, torn down financially.
1: I think yeah, this is the beginning of the downfall, kind of like he just was a huge yeah. That's like you said, a huge spender, and that's kind of uh, caught up to him. Um, and so when you when you lose your money, you, what do you turn to? Satan. Well, in Evidently his case, right. yeah, I was going to say, boy, <laughs> went pretty steep downhill for a second for him. So again, this is a lot of this is according to his trial. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt and, and we'll kind of, we'll try to give two sides of the coin here. But according to the trial, to make a quick buck, he started looking for people that knew something of occult and alchemy. One such, uh, or one person that, call him the recruiter, was Prilati in Florence. So he was Summoned and Ray started experiments like alchemical sort of things. In Tifouage, I think that's how it's pronounced. He tried to summon a demon named Baron, and Ray provided a contract with the demon, which would be to be paid later. Okay, but the demon actually never showed up, so that, that uh, didn't happen. He's already going down a pretty rough
0: path. I, I, this is this is uh, this is black magic stuff right here, isn't it?
1: Yeah well yeah it gets worse so this uh, prilati said that the reason the the demon didn't show was because he was angry and he demanded a child sacrifice or or parts of a child in any case but even after providing these so it was the the this this demand was met n- no dice the, the demon didn't show and um yeah we'll we'll get into this a little bit more but so here's the thing to regarding this podcast. So he was clearly more of a patron of alchemists than one himself. When we mentioned his involvement in the occult and searching for alchemists and everything, um, this might not be all true, but it was definitely part of the trial. And
0: to make matters a little worse for his trial, you know, alchemy at this time was considered illegal by the king and by the pope. So this would all be held against him in a trial. So he really was going up uphill in this situation. Uh, but, you know, Really what kind of made him get into this idea that uh, this trial w- would maybe have some legs to it is because he did believe in the supernatural. And this goes back to his time when he was uh, a man-at-arms with uh, Joan of Arc. Um, he was at the Siege of Orléans with Joan, and uh, he saw her pull a dart out of her shoulder and recover from a wound that more, more likely would have killed somebody in a matter of weeks or at the very least needed a month for, for her to heal. Mm-hmm. He saw that her power in her power and prayer, uh, to be awe-inspiring as a gift uh, of turning the battle around. <laughs> Instead of really looking at it from a, a standpoint of uh, its religious basis in Christianity that got her to this power, it was a basis in supernatural powers that did exist.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: that was what was around. And I think that kind of uh, gave credence to this trial to, to a certain point. Uh, yeah. One could infer that he wanted such power for himself. You know, that this was this was something that he was going to manipulate and use to his discretion. Uh he almost almost certainly believed that such power existed and uh that it would be his and his alone to hold. Yeah. Right? So, you know, there are a few stories of him being taken uh, taken in by a charlatan alchemist by the name of Blanche. Blanchet. Uh Blanchet was a priest that was sent out to find a cultist. That was his main goal because he wanted them to, he wanted to bring forth goldsmiths who could later be claimed to turn silver into gold. Mm-hmm. That was his main deal, so he was a recruiter, yeah, <laughs> right? right, you know, and so this recruiter would would meet people in a tavern, and Deray gave him a silver coin uh, to see if he could actually turn this gold this silver into gold. And he had left the alchemist so that he could have his privacy to do his thing. And when DeRay actually returned, he found the alchemist passed out, drunk from booze. You can actually turn in some silver uh, and uh, be drunk very quickly. So... This actually was. I could actually see this actually happening. So Deray wasn't swayed uh, by this so much, thinking that this was a charlatan. It's not a
1: supernatural transmutation. Is every he? I don't
0: think he really bought into that. But yeah. I did. I do think that this maybe gave him a, an idea that there were charlatans out there, and that he wasn't going to be one of those guys. He was going to harness uh, these supernatural powers for real.
1: Yeah, but but there's another story. So another time he found, um, I, I believe it's Blanchet again, found a conjurer to summon Satan. Okay, so the conjurer, after a few kind of shenanigans and cheap parlor tricks, basically he made it seem like the devil was in the other room. Maybe he could throw his voice like a ventriloquist. I don't know. He had something rigged. Um, DeRay gave the conjurer some supplies and money and sent him into the woods to do his thing. So he actually, you know, he he proved himself. He said, look, the devil's in the other room. So I got this far, okay? And so after DeRay gave him some, these supplies and money... Uh, he went into the woods and then promptly never saw him again. So this this happened more than once. But through these conjurers, we come into the next chapter, the even darker, grimmer chapter. And, and believe me, it gets worse. So there was an Italian alchemist slash sorcerer named Antonio Francisco Prelati, uh, who we kind of mentioned before. And so he was a former priest who told him that a mortal could not possibly hope to achieve the transmutation of base metals into gold without the help of Satan. Okay. And this is a former priest telling you this again, this is all according to the trial. So who knows what actually happened, but the only way that an alchemist or sorcerer could hope to arouse Satan's interest in his works was by dedicating the most abominable crimes to his name. And here's where we start to get into, to some, some pretty nasty things. Um, there there's a ghost story in Prague that reminds me of this but but uh, we might get into that on Bohemian on the Bohemian podcast so uh, stay tuned so yeah i want to kind of mention that there were some debates whether we should even do this episode or not um because so we've obviously decided to do it because i wanted to get into some charlatanism regarding alchemists and and some of the more famous stories and this is a good one So the thing is that um, with Gilles DeRay himself, we get into some some pretty brutal, nasty territory, and um, for me to still mark this episode as clean on iTunes, we're not going to get into it. But what I want to break down or mention is that, so he did believe in alchemy, Um, he believed that it was due to the help of a higher power, and there's several that that believe this. So it, it fits into a kind of generic fold, Which is what I want to mention. So this is where theurgy comes in. In this case, something more aligned the lungs of Satanism, but it's the belief of that you can um, do things like miracles, which is thaumaturgy, like um, like Thomas Aquinas, who we'll do an episode on someday. And uh, so there was this belief that you can do these natural or you know supernatural wonders and miracles that you see in the Bible. That if you have the right tools. Or you pray to the right entities that you can do these things. Okay, so this is this is very general, and uh, that's why I wanted to bring this up. However, um, and again, it's a good example of charlatans. However, this this does bring us to some of Gilles de Ray's more horrible acts, and we're not going to go into depth on them. If you want to read about them, you know, just go to Wikipedia or or buy a book on serial killers. He's mentioned in every single one, um, but. He did, at his trial, he did confess to murdering children, but after the trial, they supposedly burned the, the... I mean, it was just too horrible even. Some of the more gruesome details were censored after the trial. I mean, that's how bad it was. So at this champs sur loire starting in 1433, and later, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Machecoul, Machecoul. I'm not sure, whereas the record of his confession states, he killed or ordered to be killed no one knows how many for sure but but lots many many children were died tortured and and horrible horrible things were done to them so we're not gonna go into the details that's kinda my point I'm making but look it up if you're interested it's it's gruesome its brutal Um, again so 40 bodies were discovered in in this much cool place in 1437 during the trial
0: now, if we take a look at what we have with Wikipedia, that we can quote this because it's it's, in, it's quoted there. In 1971, biography of Gilles de Ray, uh, John Bendetti, tells, uh, tells how the children who fell to uh, Gilles de Ray's hands were put down uh, and, and put to death, which is uh, pretty rough, but this is the quote from this. Um, the boy was pampered and dressed in, in better clothes than he had ever known. The evening began with a large meal and heavy drinking, particularly Hippocras which acted as a stimulant to keep the boy awake. The boy was then taken to an upper room to which only Gilderay uh, and his immediate circle uh, were allowed admittance. There, he was confronted with the true nature of the situation, and you can only imagine what the shock uh, was to this boy, knowing that he was probably going to his death by torturous means in this torture chamber. The shock was produced on the boy was was a, an initial source of pleasure for Gilderay. So you can imagine... Uh, what kind of man we're dealing with here? Uh, to do that to to a small child. Now, if you want further information on reading this, you can definitely go to Wikipedia for that. We probably will just leave it there for this podcast because it's pretty brutal.
1: It's brutal. Uh, yeah, I'd actually yeah. give a, like a, a listener warning or a reader warning. If you do go to the Wikipedia page, it, it gets pretty uh, dark. Even well, even for it, Wikipedia, I mean, yeah, it's, as, it's as you bad. said,
0: Travis, he really to to make this stuff work, uh, to uh, use power of Satan to get to this point, he needed to go all in. It, it wasn't just straddling the line of one leg in, one leg out. I'm just trying to get into some kind of occult mysticism. He really was dabbling in with the darkest of dark arts, and that meant sacrificing 40-plus children in very horrific ways. Yeah. This leads us to the trial and execution for Jill DeRay, and there is an end game here for him. Uh, as as most serial killers, uh, you know, the, the thrill is there. Um, I think that eventually you're going to cross a line, and he did so. By kidnapping a cleric, mm-hmm. so what that really was what prompted this investigation. It wasn't all the boys, or probably the orphans, or the people that he he kidnapped and, and later killed. It was a cleric that finally uh, did him in. Uh, and if you're wondering why an investigation, if you're wondering why an investigation didn't happen any any sooner, I would suggest you look up probably one of the more famous um, uh, killers as well, serial killers from Hungary, uh, and that would be Elizabeth Bathory. You know, she she was the noble you might have heard of her that actually would. And invite young women to her castle uh, when she found out that bathing in in, uh, the blood of a young woman would make her beautiful and young forever. Her her skin Mm -hmm. appreciated that kind of attention. Uh, And she went through, you know, many, many uh, women uh, and and basically, you know, killed them and, and had their blood and bathed in their blood. And it got to the point where she actually killed somebody, that was related to nobility in Hungary, and that was the end of her line. We got up with her and basically uh, put, her, put her in solitary confinement for the rest of her life until she went
1: mad. But until then, yeah. She, was, I mean, she had free that, reign because
0: yeah. she, she was in, yeah, in the castle, you know, mm-hmm. and she was, she was uh, able to uh, rule over um, with, with any kind of need that she wanted. And the same thing really happened here with Gilda Ray. He was arrested in 1440 and had a secular investigation that matched the bishop's investigation at the same time. The prosecution was also done uh, by both the church and secular courts, so they weren't fooling around. They were going to get him uh, on on holy grounds. They were going to get him by secular means. Uh, He was charged with murder, sodomy, and heresy, so uh, things were not looking very good for him.
1: Yeah, so eventually after about a month, uh, they say not under torture – but that was on the table, so they did threaten him with it and everything. But he confessed, supposedly, not under torture. So again, the witness testimony was so bad that the judge had the worst part stricken from the records. And let me tell you, if you read about what was not stricken, yeah, so I'll just leave that up to your imagination. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty bad.
0: Well, I'll have to ask, Travis, I really don't know the numbers on this, but we had mentioned 40 young boys were killed. But what was the, what well, they, was the final count Okay, the so they,
1: they found 40 bodies. And the general number, it's, it's more or less unknown, but they place a number between 80 and 200. Wow. And some say as high as 600, so that could be her, hyperbole, but, but 80 and, between 80 and 200, you're pretty safe bet. Um, the, vi- the victims were in a range from 6 to 18 of both sexes. Now, once he confessed, he was quickly condemned to death, and he was hung. Then his body was set on fire, but... Um, now this is interesting, but so when his body was put on the on the the pyre and set a set ablaze, um, it was taken away by four ladies of high mark for burial. And I think this was kind of common at the time that um, when you when you burn somebody of a high rank, someone pulls your body off before you're completely cremated, so you could actually be buried is a thing. And uh, two others he was condemned with, like two of his his henchmen or his helpers, they were left to burn. So, you know, they weren't of any noble rank or anything, so they just let him be cremated. Um, So after his confession, he was buried buried in the church of the monastery of Notre Dame de Carme, Nantes. So again, as after he was, con- no matter what he did, after you confess, you can still be buried in a in a church. That, that actually amazes me. Yeah, well, that that's also me. part of the reason he wasn't cremated. Is he, so he, he's he's confessed, so his body is fit to be buried instead of you
0: know just. But even given that opportunity, he was only given that opportunity because he came from nobility.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, in theory, if you confess, then you're spared the you know damnation of the afterlife. So you can, you know, you're, you're, you're fit to be buried. I mean, you're innocent I don't know again, if you know this
0: question, but, you know, uh, Joan of Arc was, was burned at the stake. And I don't right. think, I think she was burned to a crisp. I don't think there was she anything was left to She was burned as buried. a heretic.
1: She refused to confess, yeah, you know. So, yeah, so I mean, she didn't think she did anything wrong. So. But okay. So did it, did it really all go down that way? I mean, again, the, the main records we have are from the trial. Why don't you give us some alternative viewpoints here? Because I, I know there's, there's more to this story.
0: So let's say, let's look at this from a historical standpoint. Whenever you look at things with history, it is very hard because it, you have something in, in, in your mind that says, you know what, my emotion says I need to be put towards this, and maybe you might kind of not look at the facts as they are. To be a true historian or amateur historian, you have to be able to balance things from many different standpoints or, or viewpoints, rather. And I think here we're looking at the question of guilt uh, the, I just there, there's some there's some really heavy evidence saying that maybe he was set up a little bit, uh, and I, we really kind of want to give that side of the story here tonight as well. Some say he was part of, of a plot uh, by the bishop or maybe even the French state uh, because he was he was a nuisance because of all the money that he was spending. Right. Uh, his family probably wanted him out of out of the way in the sense to be um uh you know negated because he was spending their money and and basically ruining their good name and. And maybe there was, a, there was a way that the bishop or the French state was going to uh, you know, speed up that process of getting him out of the way by making these trumped-up charges. But you, know, you know, look at the other idea of this, too, that would not, would not go this way in, in maybe a court of law today. The prosecutor, the Duke of Brittany, got all of, of, of his titles after his conviction. Yeah. All right, that seems a little what, That's Travis?
1: a huge conflict of interest. Yeah, ab- I mean, that's, absolutely. You, you that's a
0: mistrial. Be- you know, yeah. in, in, in today's uh, courtroom. Uh, so that seemed a little fishy. You know, and there's there's another, there's, there's a theory that DeRay was uh, a victim of the Inquisition at mm-hmm. the time that that would, would say, you know what, nobility or no nobility, we're going to take you down. Uh, now, it is kind of hard. There's a lot of evidence against this guy uh, that was brought up in the trial, but we don't know if that evidence was falsified. We don't know if that evidence was trumped up. But I would have to say, Travis, it's kind of a hard mountain to climb if you're talking about somewhere of 40 to 60 to 200 to 600 people to say that he did nothing wrong.
1: Historically, yeah. I would have a hard time probably uh, believing that. They did find 40 bodies in the castle. That, that's a fact. So to say that it was a setup and somebody else put those 40 bodies there, that sounds like a stretch that, to me. That
0: would be, a, you know, but if, the, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. I don't know if I could use that here in this particular trial.
1: Yeah, so it's it's hard <laughs> to say. There's There has been some later theories – I would say those are the kind of mainstream ones that, that are fit for this podcast. There's, there's, If you want to look up some others, uh, Alistair Crowley had a theory that I'm not even going to say because he's just full of it basically, but but feel free to look it up. Uh, it doesn't fit our standards. <laughs> and those standards are very high, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Um, that's right. <laughs> if you want more information, there's in, in 1992, Freemason Jean – I'm sorry. I'm going to butcher this name, but Jean-Yves Gros Brisonnier the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of France. He organized a court consisting of former French ministers, Parliament members, UNESCO experts, and um, basically what they did was they re-examined the source material and all the evidence that you know they could get their hands on that you know they they used at the medieval trial, and but this time around in 92 they concluded that Gilles de Ray was not guilty. Okay, and this hearing, the one in nineteen ninety two was made into a documentary called Gilles de Rey la oh geez, I'm sorry folks Gilles de Ray la du loup narrated by gilbert pro proto
0: i i'm I'm impressed that you tried that
1: yeah i'm i'm sorry, I'm sorry <laughs> folks again, so even you know what we just said if this was a modern trial or at least you know one from ninety two um, they found him not guilty. So it, maybe if it was a little bit more objective, and you know, they kind of looked at both, si- both sides and you know, innocent until proven guilty, and that kind of thing. Who knows? It, it's hard to say. Now, there's a lot of cultural ref- references because Gilles De Ray is again has one of these one of these reputations that is larger than life. So he's been the subject of movies, music, books. Often a villain. Um, there's there's just a lot of them. Parts based on his life parts, uh, it just in his role of knowing Joan of Arc. Um, I'll give a couple of examples. One is that HG Wells makes reference to Gilles Ray in his works Crux Ansata and 42 to 44 in 1943 and 1944 respectively. So HG Wells mentions him a couple of times. Bluebeard, Bluebeard de Ray is referenced in Damned from Chuck Palahniuk, page 197. I, I've, uh, that might be one of his few books that I haven't read, actually. Um, but it's one of the many literary and historical conquests of Madison during her quest for power in the depths of hell. I'm a, I'm a huge Polonic fan, so
0: that's why I brought that one up. You, you might also uh, re- remember his uh, you know, uh, uh, film version of, hi- uh, of his life uh, during the Joan of Arc movie uh, called The Messenger that came out in the late okay. 90s, yeah. I believe. So he's in that as well during the Battle of uh, Orleans. Uh, and I think that uh, you, you'll definitely catch him several times uh, in that movie. Uh, but uh, you, what's interesting is also the video game reference. <laughs> I was going to ask
1: you, have you ever played Castlevania? I'm old enough to play, have yeah. played
0: Castlevania. and oh, thought I it was it. very, very awesome. It's a classic, um, man. But uh, Jill DeRay was a, a minion of Count Dracula's in Castlevania 64 and in a sequel remake, uh, Castlevania Legacy of Darkness. Uh, yeah, so, so there he was, you go. Yeah, he's, he's in there. But, you know, a guy with, with such a pedigree of horror attached to him uh, you know, I think that he, you're right, Travis, he does go down in history, probably larger than life. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes in history, the ones that are really, really super bad to be remembered uh, will uh, almost have a cult status.
1: Yeah, and we'll mention, we'll do podcasts on Thomas Aquinas and maybe even one just on thaumaturgy or, or theurgy in general. And so we'll, we'll reference this because it's, you know, it's, it's the belief of, especially in alchemy, per se. It's it's the belief of being able to create something like, you know, transmutation, or turning something into gold, or any other miraculous act through divine or supernatural help. So it does kind of fit into that. And then we weren't sure if or we're still not sure if we're actually going to do a whole episode on charlatanism. So just to give you a couple of examples of how alchemists would rip people off, basically. Um there you go, here you have it. So yeah. That's about all we have, so thanks very much for listening.
0: Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to the
1: History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com, or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast, all about the Czech Republic, Bohemicon, which is also available on iTunes or on Bohemikon.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy Podcast, thank you for listening.